Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy St. Patrick's Day, Ashley. Happy St. Patrick's Day. We're starting early. We we are. <laughs> um, and it's a tradition on this show, which we'll, we'll get to. Normally during Lent, we are abstaining from alcohol uh, throughout the duration of this penitential season. But we do have a dispensation from our boss, Father Matt Malone, um, on St. Patrick's Day, which has a... There is some logic to it, right, Ashley? Yes, it is not just because uh, we love St. Patrick and want to go uh, to the bar to celebrate him. He is actually the patron saint of the Diocese of New York, where we're published. So it's in honor of that. <laughs> yes. So you, you've been to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It is named after St. Patrick. So it's a big deal mm-hmm. here. Um, and as a result of that, we're able to we, we actually get the day off of work at America on St. Patrick's Day, which is really nice. Um, and we're able to drink a Guinness while recording uh, yes. Jesuitical every year, so. so not on draft, but still pretty good. Yes, so <laughs> I, is it true that when you get not draft Guinness, it's better to get it in a can than a bottle? For some reason, I thought that's true, and I so when I went to the store, I got the can. I do think that is true. Normally, the cans okay. have some type of um, like I don't. I'm going to sound stupid. Oh yeah, there's a little There's ball like that something releases solid some carbonation. <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, and and that helps right. emulate what happens when you pour it out of a out of a spout okay well here we go whoa yep there's the, <laughs> there are the bubbles there are the bubbles bubbling <laughs> so you are don't take a sip yet you are supposed to let that sit for like at least 60 okay. seconds so okay thank we, you thank you we're gonna fast forward a little bit uh we, we won't make all of our listeners <laughs> wait the 60 seconds <laughs> Well, that gets ready, but anyway, uh, all right, now it's been 60 seconds and your, our, our Guinnesses are ready to go. So cheers. Slancha. Cheers. Slancha. Delicious. Oh, it does say best if poured into a glass, which I didn't do, but I think we've spent enough time on my, <laughs> on my can of beer. All right. Who are we talking to this week? This week, we've got a really exciting interview. We're chatting with the playwright and TV and film writer, Will Arbery, who you may recognize from his 2019 smash off-Broadway hit, Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Yes, it was a 2020 Pulitzer Prize finalist, um, and it kind of got a, a relook earlier this year um, when when there was the you know awful attack on the U.S. Capitol. A lot of people looked back at this play and said, "Did did Will Arbery see this coming?" Yeah, and so this play was a darling, particularly in Catholic circles. Not just Catholic circles; everybody loved it, but because it took sort of this very intimate look at a small, close, tight knit 
uh, Catholic community, um, right-leaning. They would be self-described conservatives. They're all together around a bonfire one night and talking about all kinds of things, religion, politics, you name it. Um, and Ashley, you actually went and visited uh, the school, which it's based on, right? I did. So it was, you know, the last time I got on a plane before the the pandemic hit, I went to Wyoming Catholic College, which is a small Catholic college um, in Lander, Wyoming, uh, where Will Arbery's uh, father is the president and his mom is also a professor there. So the school in this play is is loosely based off off of this school, uh, which I visited and which was it was wonderful. It's a great place. Um, and I can confirm that people there really do just have these like very deep philosophical conversations all the time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it, it can be tough to talk about a play that not everybody's seen. But the idea is that the play Heroes of the Fourth Turning engages are not everybody. Everybody's talking about them, religion, politics. So please stick around for that conversation with Will. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Zach, did you see the news about the new Dead Sea Scrolls? And remind me, but that is that is not the latest facial scrub, right? That is something else. <laughs> no, the Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient fragments of biblical text that archaeologists have found. Um, they are almost 2,000 years old, and this is the first time we've found more of these texts in over 60 years. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It, it gives us like entirely new insight into both, you know, Catholics are allergic to reading the Bible, it said sometimes, um, <laughs> but it really, like the Bible tells us certain things about God and theology and the plan for creation and all that, but actually like finding fragments of around the time when scripture was being produced gives an entirely new insight into the people and the culture and the, in the books itself. Right. And if you want to take a deeper dive into all of that history, there is a great course from the great courses plus called the history and archaeology of the bible that's right it's taught by a wonderful engaging uh, balanced professor jean-pierre Isbout, who's a national geographic historian and an award-winning filmmaker and author um he he really knows this stuff and he's taking you through all sorts of different stops archaeological um in the holy land re- talking about what went into what what the people who were living around the time that these ancient texts were composed, what their lives were like. And by, you know, by learning about that, we get a whole new insight. It's just, you know, some of life's biggest questions. Yeah. So if you want to listen to that course or so many other wonderful courses, you can head over to the great courses plus dot com slash jesuitical and get an entire month of free access yeah i mean you could learn virtually anything like you want to speak a new language maybe you watch the queen's gambit and you want to learn how to play chess get better at that um dive into some world <laughs> war ii history so much more so much more as ashley said um special offer for our listeners you just need to head over to the great courses plus.com slash jesuitical you'll get a whole free month of access when you sign up so take advantage of that offer by going to the great courses plus.com slash jesuitical and now we've got signs of the times the part of our show where we sift through the catholic news of the week so you don't have to what's our first story zach so this week had some big catholic news that i'm sure listeners probably already saw but in case you haven't the vatican's congregation for the doctrine of the faith issued a statement that declared the church does not have and cannot have the power to give blessing to unions of persons of the same sex and it was said that pope francis was informed and gave his assent to that publication and to unpack the story a little bit we thought we'd bring in our colleague national correspondent michael o'loughlin who's got a story unpacking some of the reactions to the stock 
document. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, Zach. Hey, Ashley. Hey, good to have you back. So can we just start um, unpacking what, what the document said exactly? Um, Zach mentions uh, uh, they, that the church ruled that priests cannot bless same-sex couples. Can you get into some of its the details of that, its reasoning? Sure, yeah. So the document was actually a response to an inquiry, uh, we think, from German bishops who were asking if it was possible for priests to bless same-sex couples. Uh, not quite performing or witnessing a marriage, but if a same-sex couple were to come to a priest and say, can you bless our relationship, could a priest do that? And the answer was a resounding no. Uh, Sort of the harsh language that has been picked up uh, has been, uh, God cannot bless sin. And it was a pretty complex theological document, I think, if you're not trained in theology. But basically, it boils down to that a priest can't bless this union because it would be too similar to blessing a same-sex marriage, and the church, of course, teaches that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. So, kind of the the big takeaway, though, is that if a priest is asked to bless certain things, he can't do that, but in this instance, a same-sex union is off the table. And I think some of the it was like very hyper-technical language that I think people picked up on and theological. Is that because this was a specific type of Vatican document? That's my understanding. So this was, uh, and even I am going to have some trouble with the technicality, so you guys jump in if you know better than me, but this was a response to something called a dubium, which I think is when there's a theological question that someone has. It sort of looks to guidance from Rome to answer the question. And sort of the background on this is the church in Germany is considering how to move forward on some difficult pastoral questions. And there's been a proposal to look at LGBT ministry in Germany. And, you know, some bishops thought that maybe this is a way to kind of show the LGBT Catholic community that they are welcome, that while stopping short of marriage, maybe they could bless same-sex, you know, couples uh, who have entered into a civil union. And I think there was some confusion, like, would this be allowed in the church? So, you maybe had someone petitioning the Vatican for guidance and issuing this very, uh, you know, technical reason why the answer would be no. Got it. So that was that was the answer to that specific question. But the document also, um, I don't know, some people pointed to some more positive, encouraging language about how to minister to LGBT people um, in this document. So what else did it say? Yeah, so the document uh, did cite current church teaching that says that uh, LGBT Catholics must be accepted with uh, compassion and sensitivity, that it was uh, never right to unjustly discriminate against LGBT Catholics. And, you know, that's kind of the message that our colleague, Father Jim Martin, has been preaching for several years now, that there is this uh, sort of more positive language in the Catholic uh, Church teaching about LGBT people. But at the same time, uh, there was understandably a lot of hurt in the LGBT world, uh, friends and allies and family also hurt by this. And they said they didn't understand why, even if the church was going to hand down this very kind of clear, you know, forbidding priests from blessing unions, why there wasn't more of an emphasis on that positive side that, you know, it mm-hmm. is important to make sure that LGBT people feel respected, feel welcome, know that they're loved by God. There was sort of a nod to that side of the teaching, but I don't know, maybe because it was such a technical document, they wanted to be very clear about their reason for giving the no rather than pointing what to what they already see as existing church teaching. Mm-hmm. Now, a question that a lot of people have is, is, you know, what is going on with Pope Francis's involvement in all this? Um, he, you know, he was famous in the news just a couple months ago for um, having some more positive comments about same-sex civil unions, for example. Um, does this document contradict some past statements of his? 
This has been the story uh, about Pope Francis and LGBT Catholics for eight years now. We're just celebrating his uh, eight-year anniversary. Uh, You know, he'll say something that the LGBT Catholic world finds affirming or positive, or he'll meet with someone or send some kind of symbolic gesture that seems to be kind of a positive step forward. And then a few months later, you have something like this that maybe comes out from a Vatican office that seems to be taking a step back from that positive statement or gesture. And you're right. Back in the fall, a new documentary emerged that uh, included old footage of Pope Francis saying he maybe supports civil unions. Um, Of course, this is a position he had even as Archbishop of Buenos Aires when he said, you know, we can have civil unions, but let's reserve marriage as uh, the church belief as a man and a woman. So, but still, you you know, to see a pope say that was uh, big news. Certainly, uh, LGBT Catholics felt like they had another example of Pope Francis saying something positive. And then just a few months later, you have this statement coming out uh, that was welcomed with some hurt and anger in the LGBT world. So, I don't know. Uh, Someone asked me earlier this week in an interview, like, what to make of this. And I'm not sure. I don't know if the pope... uh, You know, he's someone who certainly has a a big heart when it comes to all sorts of communities, and the LGBT community seems to be no different, but he's also a product of the church, and the church is made up of a lot of rules. And I think he's maybe struggling with how do you balance this pastoral instinct with this uh, church of rules that we have. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming months we see another gesture that kind of pushes back against this, because he does uh, see the hurt that it's caused the community. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. You've alluded to the reaction from the LGBT community. And this week in America, you've got uh, a piece detailing just that. And the headline is, It Just Hurts. Uh, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how the LGBT Catholic community is feeling about this this latest development. Yeah, so our colleague Colin Dully and I partnered up on a story that sought reaction from a range of Catholics. We spoke to students uh, studying theology to uh, activists and kind of ordinary Catholics in the pews to ask, what did they think about this document? And yeah, they said, you know, it kind of stings. Um, the whiplash is, you know, at least if you're always receiving negative messages, you can kind of steal yourself and be prepared for that. But when you start kind of putting that with positive messages too, you don't really know what to think. Uh, I interviewed Juan Carlos Cruz, who's a, a survivor of clerical sex abuse and an advocate for victims. Uh, he is a gay Catholic and he's fairly friendly with the Pope. And he told me, look, he isn't sure what to make of this because he knows that the Pope uh, is wanting to create a more welcoming environment for gay Catholics. The Pope told him, you know, God made you the way you are. God loves you. And he wishes the Vatican would kind of reiterate that statement more rather than uh, what he said was like a dagger to the heart uh, when he read this statement. So, you know, I asked him, I said, are you going to call Pope Francis and talk about this? Because I know they speak on the phone. And he said that he hopes they'll have time to talk about this in the coming weeks and months. So that's why I'm, I'm curious to see what the what the reaction is after that conversation. Yeah, and we will definitely be following that story along with you. Um, Listeners, you can read Mike's piece at americamagazine.org. And if you want to hear more about this story, Colleen Dully and Gerard O'Connell are talking about it this week on Inside the Vatican. Thank you so much for coming on, Mike, and sharing your reporting. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. What's our next story, Ashley? On Tuesday, the Jesuits announced a new initiative to atone for their history of slaveholding. The Jesuits have pledged to raise 
$100 million for the Descendants of Truth and Reconciliation Foundation. Um, and the proceeds of that will go to the descendants of people owned by the Jesuits um, and to projects promoting racial reconciliation. Yeah. So this is the latest in a development that we, we've covered on this show before. Um, we were privileged enough to speak to uh, Dr. Anita Estes Hicks, um, who is herself a member of this uh, GU uh, 272 group um, that is made up of descendants of uh, enslaved people who were owned by Georgetown. Um, and there, you know, there were a lot of questions as this was getting together and the Jesuits, you know, have apologized and Georgetown has apologized. Lots of people have been wondering, you know, OK, but what are the what are the next action steps? And um, this is, <laughs> as people like to say, putting their money where their mouth is in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's, I think one of the important parts about it is it's it's really it's a partnership between the Jesuits and and this group of descendants. And it's it's the descendants who are really leading the charge and, and how they want this money to you know start that work of reconciliation in a concrete way. Um, so they've said that the foundation will provide grants to organizations that promote racial reconciliation and justice, uh, as well as scholarships for descendants and support for elderly and infirm descendants who are in need. Um, so it is, it, it's going to go to real concrete, um, uh, you know, initiatives uh, to, you know, help people who are still suffering from the legacy of Jesuit slaveholding. And, and uh, you're, you're right in that. I, one of the things I think is really cool about this and in, in that it being a partnership with the descendants is that it really is an ongoing conversation. And a lot of people have pointed that, you know, this is just the start, um, not just with the Jesuits and with Georgetown, but hopefully this can serve as a catalyst um, for the rest of our country, which is still at the very beginnings, if we can even say that, about dealing with, you know, what is our, what do we owe the descendants of this original sin in our country. Um, so we'll be looking for for more updates for this, but uh, pretty big number right now, $100 million with uh, an ultimate goal to get up to a billion dollars raised for the project. What's our next story, Zach? Well, uh, it's March and <laughs> it means it's time for some madness. Uh, I will say uh, I did miss this last year. Uh, NCAA tournament is back again and there are some Jesuit schools involved, which we feel like we should, we should call out here specifically um, as this is a Jesuit <laughs> uh, run project. Yes. So we've got the Gonzaga Bulldogs, Creighton Blue Jays, Georgetown Hoyas, and I think I'm forgetting one of them. How dare you? <laughs> uh, Loyola Chicago, my alma mater and sweetheart of the nation, Sister Jean's um, program. The Bramblers are back in the tournament. Um, those are the Jesuit schools, but there's also some other Catholic schools, Villanova, Mount St. Mary's, Iona Prep, and St. Bonaventure. Um, and also, we, your, your alma mater, Ashley, is in the school. Yes, I will say that I missed March Madness last year, but the upside of it is that UVA is now the two-year year reigning champion of NCAA. So hopefully we can hold on to that title this year. That's right. If we don't all get COVID. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Really? Yeah. UVA is dealing with some problems. Um, it's really exciting. I love, I love this time of year. If you, if you recall long time listeners of the show, will know we talked to Joe Lunardi, who is ESPN's uh, bracketologist officially um, about, <laughs> you know, why there's so many parallels between sports and religion. You know, they're called fanatics for a reason is what Joey Brackets told us a couple of years back. Um, but we wanted to participate in the spirit of this, this maddening time by uh, launching a special bracket challenge with uh, members of our Patreon community. And so if you are a member of 
our Patreon supporters. You should have gotten a message this week with information on how to sign up for our official Patreon Jesuitical Bracket Challenge. Can you beat Ashley and I uh, in picking <laughs> the upsets and the national championship? I'm going to be straight up. I'm picking Loyola to go all the way. You mu- I was going to ask, do you do you follow your heart or your head? I absolutely this? believe. I just cannot <laughs> understand the person who is rational enough to pick their, their their beloved school to lose. Like, I can see the logic to it, but I just can't go through the process of clicking another school to go forward as opposed to Loyola. And that said, Sister Jean has them losing, I think, in the Elite Eight. So, you know, she, okay. she's got much... She's able to, like, set aside her feelings better than I am. <laughs> uh, but I've got Loyola going all the way. Do you got... What, who do you have? Do you have a Jesuit school or UVA or what? I haven't filled out my bracket yet, but I think I... I am ashamed to say that I did not have UVA going all the way last year um, or two years ago, I guess. Uh, and and then they won and I, I was embarrassed. Uh, so I think even though they are not predicted to do as well this year, I, I will atone for that by making them the champion. So tournament starts Friday at noon. So depending on when you're listening to this, make sure to get your picks in and sign up to join the Patreon community. You can do all that at patreon.com slash America media. And uh, I'll, I'll just be very happy once my bracket <laughs> beats yours, Ashley, because I'm confident that Loyola goes further than UVA this year. <laughs> all right. We'll see. And if you want even more basketball content, I do. Should... <laughs> I do want more basketball content. Always. Of course you do. I, we want this so, to be a basketball podcast, but I've been reined in enough that it only gets brought up a few times a year. But anyway, where can people find more basketball content, Ashley? They can go to America's Church Meets World podcast, where our colleague uh, Kevin Jackson has a story uh, looking at the ethical questions around paying college athletes. Uh, so check that out. You can subscribe to Church Meets World from American Media. And now stick around for our conversation with Will Arbery. Joining us from just blocks away in Brooklyn is Will Arbery. Will is a playwright, a TV and film writer and filmmaker, and his 2019 off-Broadway play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, was a 2020 Pulitzer Prize finalist. Welcome to Jesuitical, Will. Thank you for having me. It, it feels dumb to say, but like I, I, I love the yeah. play. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> of I just want to get that out of the way. Yeah. Um, and w- Ashley and I both were able to see it, and it was, it's amazing. I know. We were lucky. We got to see it on stage before the pandemic hit. It's the last thing I saw on stage before, oh, wow. before the pandemic hit. So, and and on its final night, no less. Um, oh wow! So cool. Feel very lucky to have snuck it in there at the yeah. last minute. <laughs> I'm glad you got to see it too. I. Feel feel so lucky that it happened before the pandemic hit mm-hmm. you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. I yeah so for those of our listeners who haven't gotten seen the play um i'm sure you can give a better brief synopsis than either of us could so could you could you just give us a small summary of the you know time location uh big ideas of the play sure um it it takes place in uh, August 2017, um, a week after the Charlottesville riots and the night after Bannon has resigned or been fired or whichever way you want to interpret it. And then a couple nights before the big uh, solar eclipse that was that year. And so very um, much a flashpoint in the Trump era. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's about um, the alumni of a small catholic great books college in wyoming who reunite um to see 
their favorite professor inaugurated as the new president of that school. And it's basically just, you know, it takes place mostly in real time and it's late and most of the other party goers, it's sort of like an after party after the inauguration and, and most of them have gone home and it's just sort of these four stragglers who have a sort of at least slowly start to learn their history with each other and they are um, basically just hashing it out uh, on a personal level but also very much on a um, theological, philosophical and political level and yeah, it's it's just an immersion into a very specific conservative Catholic world um and you know it's very much the world that i grew up in and uh yeah and then the and then the the professor shows up and then more hashing out and debating happens and and then we all go home rattled and depressed (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that is definitely true um what you just did such a phenomenal job of like creating characters that i think sort of represent uh I don't know. They're, they're typecast very well. I, I could see myself represented in, in, in different phases of my own life, like in the different characters. Could you quickly just like rattle through um, the broad strokes you were trying to hit of those types of characters? Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, it's the, 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 even the notion of archetype is, is uh, an important one in the, in the play because there's this, it's the place sort of, the title of the play references this generational theory by these two sort of pop sociologists, historians, um, the four turnings. Um, and, and within those turnings, there are archetypes of the hero, nomad, prophet, and artist. So there's this one character, Teresa, who is uh, a sort of devotee of Steve Bannon, who in real life loves this generational theory um and she's a, she lives in brooklyn you know not too far from where each of us is <laughs> calling in from and <laughs> um and she works for like a you know a pretty hard right almost like flirting with alt-right uh online magazine and she's like sort of the most like stridently uh hardline absolutist conservative catholic and, and um, loves the culture wars right like that's yeah the, yeah yeah and very like so one of her one of the first things she says in the play is that there's a war coming and that we need to be ready to fight and um yeah and she loves owning the libs and like you know she's just like very (laughs) very in that mode and then there's kevin who was in her same class at the at the college and he is much more lost in his life and he's living in oklahoma where, where he grew up and he's working for a catholic textbook company and he's sort of you know, his thing is that he, he either wants to be a priest or he really wants a girlfriend and he can't make up his mind. And it's sort of this tormented alcoholic push pull between desire and, and faith. And, um, and he's, yeah, he's, he's also, you know, he's also very eloquent, but he's also like totally spinning out on this night and just very lost. (laughs) Zach, is that Uh, you in college? (laughs) I was like, the the, the nights in college where I was like, should I be a priest or not? Was very relatable in in a not flattering way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then there's Justin, who is older than the other characters. He's in his late 30s, but he's actually was in a he graduated later than Teresa and Kevin uh, because he had done some time in the military and then decided to go back to school. Um, And he's, yeah, he's like a former Marine. This is his 
house where the play takes place, his backyard, it starts, we start the play with seeing him in the early morning shoot a deer. And he spends most of the play sort of when no one's looking, trying to scrub the, the porch, um, which, which he thinks he sees, uh, is stained with blood from that deer. And he, he, um, yeah, he's very, you know, I guess like if, if you had to boil down his like political stance, he's a little bit more, um, of a proponent of like Rod Dreher's Benedict option and, and very much thinks that like conservatives and especially like Catholics, people of faith are not going to like win the culture wars or win, you know, lasting power. And so they just should retreat and, um, you know, shelter wanderers and bake bread and survive. And then, you know, if the war shows up at their doorstep, obviously we've seen that he, you know, he will, got a gun. Yeah. He, he like he'll handle that, but, but he, uh, he's, he seems much more interested in this sort of like retreat. Um, and then the, the fourth young character is Emily who actually didn't go to the school, but she's the daughter of the, the president, the professor that they're all waiting for. And she has a chronic illness, which is never named, but it's heavily implied that it's Lyme disease and that she, and she's been sick for over seven years. And, um, she's much more, she's the most like ecumenical in, in her mindset and open and, um, loving. And she, but she, you know, she also used to work at a, at a pro-life pregnancy center, um, but you know, and sort of paradoxically or not, um, that actually softened her views on the pro-life debate and, and opened her eyes to like the nuance of it and the women who are actually involved in it. And whereas Teresa is much more, um, uh, you know, t- totally non-negotiable uh, in her views, and you know, they they have a sort of fraught debate about whether someone who works at Planned Parenthood, for example, can be a good person. And Emily is sort of, you know, she's, she's clearly in love with Justin and she's sort of, you get the sense that she's out of bed for the first time in months and that it's, she's, she's engaging in this conversation and, and interacting with these people. at sort of like a physical cost to herself. All of them are, uh, very religious, but in sort of different ways. And her, her religious life seems to be linked to her pain and and she seems to have a very intimate uh, relationship with God. Yeah. And then the professor shows up and she's sort of a old school conservative in a way, although Teresa, who was her protege sort of challenges her and says that her more, you know, extreme uh, hard right beliefs were the logical next step from what Gina, the professor taught her. Um, uh, Gina was like a former member of the John Birch Society and she was a Goldwater girl and she, you know, she speaks um, sort of very diplomatically about uh, her views, but Teresa pushes her and sort of tries to get a more, you know, a sort of more absolutist and, and, and militant um, take out of her, which Gina resists and it sort of leads to a, a fight that becomes personal. So yeah, those are the, those are my five little happy, happy gang. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Will, in reviews of the play, your, the characters are often uh, described as Trump supporters, but watching it seems like they're not the most enthusiastic Trump supporters. And it's more like his candidacy or his presidency is making them have to like make decisions about where they fit in the culture wars. Is that, is that right? Or how would you describe that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I when writing this play, I mean, I didn't want to shy away from the topic of Trump. Obviously, that's a point of interest and, and entry for a lot of people, especially people who didn't grow up in this kind of world. Um, but, you know, it, it very much 
was a priority for me to show that, you know, it's not as simple as maybe <laughs> people think and that, um, and that, you know, people who cast a vote for someone, uh, might have uh, pretty complicated and and nuanced reasons. Right, and you did gr- you did grow up in that world. Can you can you describe the religious and political contours of of your childhood that that shaped this play? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, my parents are conservative Catholic intellectuals who I th- think you know like. Uh, my mom is my mom is a political philosopher you know that's what she teaches and my dad is a poet and a novelist and he and also a teacher he teaches tends to teach literature um but both of them are just very uh they have d- d- sort of devoted their lives to great books and this sort of classic uh core curriculum you know uh that they really believe in and the school that they teach at now they throughout my childhood we sort of hopped around from different um sort of bubbles of that uh teaching ethic um but they found this this school in wyoming wyoming catholic college that combines great books education with wilderness training and sort of uh i think that the, the appeal of that was so instant for them uh the idea of having students who we're not only like, you know, like learning about Achilles and, uh, and, and, you know, these great, um, stories and, and ideas, but also getting out there and, and physically sort of like experiencing them. So that like that, that dance between tactile experience and adventure and like heroism and, and, uh, and the, the world of, text and idea um anyway so so that's where they are now and and you know growing up um you know i grew up mostly in like bush era uh texas and you know they they never struck me as being like exactly that type of republican even the word republican like doesn't feel really right for them but they were very much like conservatives you know like so and i i i think you know mostly what that centers around it seems to me is you know the catholic teaching um, you know, very, they're very pro-life, very, you know, big proponents of, you know, natural law. And so, you know, that means that they're, you know, very, um, opposed to most, you know, pro LGBT legislation. They're very, very skeptical of, you know, the transgender discussion. They, you know, they, they, they and, and so for a long time, I just was sort of trying to, get away from, you know, not necessarily them, but that world, uh, and just like pretend that that's not, you know, part of me. And that was like a a big part of like my early twenties. And, and, and then I sort of realized that I, you know, I sort of felt this like calling almost to investigate it further and, and rather than run away from it to circle back and dive back into it and and try to understand, um, you know, not only, why they believe the things that they believe openly, but also the ways in which um, those beliefs kind of intersect with things that they might not be so open about, especially regarding like race in America and, you know, just all of it. And and it's an ongoing investigation for me and, and something that I'm continuing to explore in other works. But well, And you do it in a, you do it in a really loving way, which is, I think is why maybe we should just say for our audience, like, 
it was so well received across the spectrum, the political spectrum. Um, and, and I think that's a testament. Yeah. What like Rod Dreher and the New York Times agreed on this play, which they don't they don't agree on a lot. <laughs> no. And your parents, you, I, I think, read generally liked it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a big testament that like I think most people hearing this might say like oh this this their liberal kid in Brooklyn, you know, just like took it out on them. But that that's not the case. Right. Now, that's what, something I was curious about is your play came out a time when there was still like a small remnant maybe of of liberals who were still willing to like be curious about the elusive Trump voter and like send a journalism to fly or journalist to fly over country to investigate what was going on there. Um, and it seems like after the Capitol, like all of that curiosity is gone and it's just uh, either the stance of yay, like Biden's president. Now we can forget about it. Or just like a more punitive stance of like, I, I don't care what the people who attacked the Capitol believe like they should be in jail. Um, but it sounds like you still think there's value in listening and trying to, you know, tell these stories. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, like, as I said in the, the interview that I did for America magazine recently, you know, I'm not like uninterested in, in the people who stormed the Capitol and what that sort of mindset is, but, you know, I'm much more interested in, you know, the sort of millions of people who would never storm the Capitol, but who watched that footage with some sort of pang of sympathy. I think there's like a lot more of those people than there are actual people who broke the windows and, and like goofily sauntered into the, 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 uh, the, the Senate chambers. And then, you know, just like putzed around for a bit and said a prayer and then were ushered out politely by the security. Like it was all like so, so, so bizarre. And I think like speaks to a, a larger problem about, you know, the, you know, the, you know, sympathy of, of the, the police and the state itself. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that like that, like mistrust and those divisions and, and, uh, that's like skepticism and that resentment and, um, and even, uh, to a degree that sort of like, vicarious uh, aggression um like those things are not really going anywhere people aren't just sort of like accepting that uh you know everything's more peaceful now and and just you know taking taking the hit and and, and like and, and moving on you know they're the, the those resentments are just gonna um build and um it's not it's honestly it's not hard to see how that could happen. I mean, I, I, I just, it, it, it's so clear. I mean, these past four years have made it so clear how like whatever your leanings might be in one direction or another, you have ample, ample evidence um, uh, to uh, fuel your hatred for the other side. And, and so I, I think we just need to um, <laughs> remember that even if things feel a little bit better for our side right now or however you define your side like there's people out there who who hate <laughs> they hate our freedom <laughs> <laughs> who hate what makes you comfortable i think i think it's more it's it's not it maybe it's you know maybe it's freedom but but they they hate your comfort um no, I, that uh, was i was just echoing the like post 9-11 <laughs> refrain <laughs> i don't actually think they hate our freedom. but in some way maybe like our libertinism <laughs> would be a different way of saying it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's so many levels to all of it. <laughs> and it's, uh, I'm just sort of trying to like stay awake to what I see and what seems to be happening. 
what are some of your strategies because uh, to to staying awake or, or what what are your strategies as an artist for paying attention to to the details i don't know it's it's just it's just sort of a practice at this point honestly like just kind of like a a daily practice of of um not over identifying with any of these sort of machinations or operations um not sort of like ascribing personal value to politics i mean because because really really what i'm interested in is is the is people and it just seems to me like being being an artist who's trying to write about the world as it is right now the world that i'm seeing and experiencing it seems to me that everyone is hooked up to a show and um and really addicting addicted to it and also like ascribing a lot of personal value to their um side in this like this sort of war <laughs> that that they are being told is happening <laughs> i mean i guess also by like people like me who's like it's already <laughs> happening but like but uh but y- you know i uh, i think part of the reason i say that it's already happening is because people are getting out there acting as though it is like we we saw that on january 6th we saw that also last year a lot and so um yeah i don't know what i <laughs> what i try to do is just sort of like steal myself and sort of treat it as a vocation because i think i'm also in like a i i think i'm in the position where where i'm able to do that and not you know like i'm a i'm i'm a straight white man who comes from a conservative a pretty like ultra conservative family and then was like handsomely rewarded uh for just like talking about it and so like i like i I think that I'm in a in a unique position to not um, ascribe too much like emotional value to any one thing, and so like I just sort of like eventually worked out that that was sort of like my job, and that like I I could um, absorb those pretty extreme opposing viewpoints and then try to make something beautiful out of it somehow, and that that could be like how I. Uh, contribute something meaningful to this world with the time that I have. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you definitely did. And thank you for giving some of that time to us today. (laughs) Um, Oh yeah. No problem. (laughs) We do. Sorry, I was just rambling. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Lots of insights in there. Um, We do have one final question. That's a bit of a departure from where we've been so far, uh, but that we ask all of our guests on the show, which is if you could canonize, one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, it can be one of your own characters. That's fine. <laughs> canonize. Whoa. What a, what, a, uh, what a responsibility to canonize. I've been reading these, this, this sort of col- collected like memory book of of Samuel Beckett. And I think, um, I think there's something about the way he lived his life, you know, almost as a sort of like art monk, um, that, uh, that I really do admire. And, uh, and maybe, maybe that's my answer. <laughs> All right. St. Samuel yeah. Beckett. I can, I'm, I'm game. The art yeah. monk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what he was like, like, you know, interpersonally or whatever. So I don't like, yeah, he probably was like, would hate this maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> Oh, definitely. I mean, there's a biography about him that's called damned to fame. So I think, 
uh, he would he would definitely hate it. <laughs> Which is exactly what a saint would ha- would hate. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. Will, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything you want to plug right now, or we, we should be pointing people to? Um, no. <laughs> Great. Love it. Where can we? I assume you're working on stuff. Where, where, where can we find out about it when it happens? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, like, I have a website, but I'm I'm working on. Uh, yeah, I'm working on some like film and TV stuff, especially right now. That you know, hopefully, if it happens, like, it'll be widely available. But we'll see. <laughs> you're like when, when when Netflix takes it, you'll know. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, awesome. We'll see. Yeah. Um, thanks a lot thank you I hope that this I have no idea what I just talked about so I hope that uh, it was uh, somewhat interesting it was great no thanks so much okay thank you Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a desolation this week, and I um, was having some trouble um, because I sat down and I was like, I feel like nothing has happened spiritually this week. Like, there's just nothing going on. So I was like, okay, well, what what was I feeling this past week? And I got to be honest, it was like mostly anxiety. Um and this is sort of coming on the heels of I don't, my last constellations have been about hope and letting myself feel hope. And so naturally, uh, of course, you know, this anxiety and despair about the future is coming around the corner. Um, <laughs> and I'm th- this is coming at a time where I'm really excited for the world to get back to normal. And I know we're a long way away from that, um, or maybe not that long, but I'm an extrovert. I want to be around people. I want to do more things. I want to go places. But I also... I'm really like, I don't know, afraid of what the world is going to look like because I don't know. And this is coming from a really privileged position, but I was able to do it, like, just like put aside a lot of the parts of modern life that are maybe more toxic than we'd like to admit, like traveling all the time, filling ourselves up with busyness. Um, And like, I I was talking to my wife, Amanda, and like, we've been able to spend a ton of time together in our first year of marriage. And we were just thinking about like what our lives looked like and how much time we spent with each other really before in the before times. And, you know, one of the benefits of this time is the increase in relationship we've got here. And I don't know, there's just the past week is people are starting to ramp up and schedule things over the summer and starting to look ahead and that's something I would normally be really excited about, but I got to admit, I'm turning to the fear. I'm afraid. I'm anxious. I kind of want it all to stop a little bit more. Um, and so that's where I need to go and pray about, because I know that there's opportunities for for God and the Spirit to work where there is that fear. Um, but that's where I'm at right now. So that's my desolation this week. Yeah, I have been surprised to have those same same feelings. Um, I was reading an article, I think, in The Atlantic, where the author coined the term phono fear of normal like we talk about FOMO fear of missing out and now now people are having FOMO they've gotten used to like the slower pace of life and are like worried that they forgot how to do small talk and oh yeah 
I'm, I'm certainly afraid of that. I can barely do the um, small talk with you at the top of the show. <laughs> God forbid. Yeah. No. Uh, what do you What do you have this week, Ashley? Uh, I have a consolation. Uh, I was able to go home or go to Virginia this past weekend for my niece's first birthday. Um, you know, I've been lucky uh, over the past year to to spend some time with my family, and I noticed often, especially in that first long stretch when I was home for, or living with my parents for, I don't know, two months or whatever. And then every time I went to visit, I had this feeling of like resentment whenever my parents expressed like how happy they were that I was there and how much they loved me. And I would just like, I could like feel myself like putting on this hard shell and like, I wanted, I didn't like that feeling. I wanted to, you know, be able to embrace that. And so I, I did, I brought it to prayer this past Lent and kind of tried to unpack it. And I was like, I think, I think this, what this is, is like, I'm afraid of like becoming like the spinster, the daughter who like <laughs> moves back in with her parents because she hasn't started her own family. And that like fear of, of what the future held for me just made me close myself off to a loving relationship. So I think even just naming it, in prayer with God kind of enabled me to detach it from, from my experience. So this past weekend I was, I was back in Virginia and um, you know, my parents were just as happy as ever to see me and just as loving. And I was able to just accept that and be happy to be with them. So I think it was the process. I don't know. Fear can make us kind of like go into a hiding, a hiding place um, and that closes us off to relationship and even just naming it and bring it into the light sometimes is enough not to make it go away, but to open up those relationships again. So that was my consolation this week. Well, um, you are loved and your parents are great and I'm sure they really I are. I just like I love to have you there. Um, I'm glad you were able to spend some time with them. Yeah, me too. All right, get us out of here. All right, let's continue our St. Patrick celebrations. Yes, indeed. Off, <laughs> off mic. <laughs> Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.